0: to PodRocket. i'm kate the producer of pod rocket, and with me today is ash jeffs hi ash how are you doing i'm good thanks thanks
1: for having me on your show
0: yeah thanks for being here and ash is the creator of benthos thanks so much for coming on um with me also is brendan our engineer at log rocket hi brendan how are you doing
2: hey kate i'm doing great
0: awesome um yeah so ash if you just want to kind of tell us a little about yourself and what you're working on and we can start there
1: uh, yeah, so I am working on a an open source stream processor called Benthos, and that's pretty much what I've been doing for uh, the last five years or so. And that's been a full-time effort for about two, uh, maybe a bit more than that. Um, and it's pretty much all I'm working on at this stage. Um,
2: so I think it probably makes sense for us to start by, by maybe taking a small step back and talking about what a system like Benthos is at a high level. What is stream processing? What does Benthos do? What are some of the problems it solves? And and who is that for?
1: Right. So the the kind of term stream processing um, can be used to fit in a few different uh, types of system. But generally, it means you're um, writing some software that reads a continuous feed of data in the form of discrete events or messages, whatever you want to call it. Um, logs, some people call them, um, and that will be from um, some queue system is usually involved. So something like Kafka, uh, if that rings any bells for people, or NATS, um, Rabbit MQ, things like that. Um, and normally, what you're doing with that data varies greatly uh, depending on what what the data is and what kind of business you are. But um, usually, it will involve transformations and um, enrichments. So maybe based on the contents of a message, you want to acquire. Uh, more information from somewhere else, um, which means you're kind of integrating with all these different services and things. um, And then um, you either wanna put that data somewhere else. So you're kind of a streaming pipeline um, with streaming coming in and a stream coming out, or maybe you want to perform some sort of like calculation on that data that you use to update some other systems. So it could be some metric that you're measuring, or uh, maybe you wanna produce alerts or something like that from it. but the, the general outcomes of these systems um, vary quite a lot, but there are a lot of commonalities um, between them. So enrichments often look uh, very, very similar um, with minor differences and transformations are also the same. They often look, um, you know, the, the outcome will be different each time, but the process by which you do it, um, there's a lot of commonalities between these different systems. So um, what I kind of work on is, general tooling that tries to find um, an abstraction around these common themes um, and just gives you like a, a nicer bundled um, way of doing all that stuff.
2: I'd love to hear a little bit more about the origin story of, of Benthos. You said you've been working on it for five years in total, full-time for two. Could you tell us a little bit about your career and how that led you to, to work on Benthos? and maybe talk about where the project started and where it is today.
1: Yeah, so I um, I was working in stream processing for, um, I'd probably been doing it for about four years uh, up until that point. So this was like nine years ago now. Um, and that was mostly working in social media data, where we're bringing in like the uh, Twitter fires and stuff um, at a company called Datasift, shout out to uh, my Datasift friends. Um, and there was a lot of systems that were kind of uh just these streaming plugged components in this massive architecture of streaming um things and my job was basically playing whack-a-mole with those services and adding features and um adding new uh new items and things and it ended up getting to the point where you know as as an engineer you kind of see the common patterns and you you have your own opinions as to what a good service in that space looks like and how it behaves Um, and it got to the point where I was kind of, I was kind of itching to, to build a sort of generic tool to solve a lot of the problems that we were kind of, um, spending a lot of time on as engineers reinventing over and over again. Um, and unfortunately we just didn't really have the capacity to do that, um, at the company. So I ended up just kind of doing it as a a sort of hobby project for, um, I think it was about two years that I was just working on it, um, as like a side thing and it wasn't running anywhere. It was just me playing around. Um, and this was also about the time that I was kind of experimenting with the programming language GoLang, um, and I uh, had a lot of fun with it. But then, um, about two years in, was when it was kind of ready to to use in production, um, as far as I was concerned. So th- that's when um, I started having conversations with the company again. We maybe, you know, tested it in a few places, and um, it, once it got to the point where the company was using it, um, it was. Sort of, um, it just sort of spread because obviously it's a generic tool. So once once we got use of it somewhere and we kind of proved the concept out, it suddenly solved all these other problems and it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, and then for about three years uh, from that point, um, I'm getting all my times mixed up now, but for for a while anyway, um, we were we were kind of gradually rolling it out um, across this company and it sort of gobbled up more of these services and. Um, it got to the point then where other companies started using it, and that's when you know I started getting a bit of a, an online community, um, and obviously because it was open source, um, it sort of encouraged other people to come in and contribute their own stuff, and and that's where it's kind of gotten now to the point where it's multiple organisations, multiple teams, um, kind of sharing their use cases and stuff around it. So if if one of my
2: friends told me that they were building a, a stream processor from scratch, I feel like I would say you know. That's cool, but aren't there like four CNCF projects that already do this? Um, I'm curious what you see as like unique about Benthos compared to other stream processing tools that are out there, and and maybe like what you needed to be able to do that you couldn't with with another tool.
1: Um, the the main frustration I had back when I started it was um, delivery guarantees, and that's because we had we had quite strict rules about. Um, data retention and and creating like good citizen services. Um, And there were a lot of tools specifically around the sort of observability and logging space that kind of did the sort of stuff that we wanted, that we could have potentially adapted, but they were architected in a way where um, delivery guarantees weren't really a priority at all. Um, So not really suitable for our use cases. So they were kind of immediately written off as um, don't touch, can't use, um and then the other end of the spectrum, so the, this was back when stream processing was kind of just taking off um so we had a lot of um systems like Spark kind of um gradually translating people from this batch uh these batch systems to streaming systems, and they were kind of on the other end of the spectrum where they were they had you know some stronger delivery guarantees and a sense of um resiliency, but they were specialized towards Big distributed um, processing, and were therefore quite complex to set up, and these you know these big um, architectural uh, hazards, um, essentially for 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 people to work with. Um, and what we were doing was uh, what you call single message transforms right now, where we're just we're just taking messages as they come, and you know just doing just doing basic stuff. It's just mapping and um, a few enrichments and. Um, Maybe stream joins, but not in such a way that you need a distributed system. So um, what I wanted was something that was as stateless as these logging tools with proper delivery guarantees, and then um, things like metrics and logging, the the, the sort of general standards on how observability should work were kind of forming at that point as well um, and kind of changing a lot. And... That was a big thing as well. Is like I wanted a service that was going to be easy to, to monitor. Like you can just deploy this one binary somewhere. Um, it doesn't need to be distributed. It's it's stateless. Um, and if you want to scale it, you can just deploy more. Um, and you immediately have dashboards ready because the metrics are all there out of the box and and things like that. Um, so it was mostly consideration around usability and just making it operationally simple for people. Um, I was not the person deploying it. Uh, at the company that I was at, but I was definitely getting my um, ears shouted at uh, by those people directly. Um, so it was painful for me if it was a painful experience for them. Um, I don't, didn't have empathy for them as people, um, but they made it a problem for me. So
2: um, you, you kind of hinted there that a lot of these tools sort of required you to buy into a whole ecosystem of, of data formats and, and sort of ancillary tools and and patterns and that benthos was sort of more pluggable was that something that when you made those decisions you were thinking of you know how that would scale to a community of people adopting benthos in the future or, or were you just thinking about
1: sort of solving that initial problem that you had um it was not really uh, to to be honest it was more I, I was building it for me really i was like the 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 priority for me when building this tool was that you're kind of building a garden, right? It's like um, it's like a, a nice, pretty little thing that you can you can come and spend your your evenings working on um, as like a zen space. And my um, worry when doing that sort of stuff is, as soon as my problem space changes, like if I'm working on some of the types of system, I'm going to have to leave my garden behind because it no longer applies. So you kind of want to. I, I wanted to have a garden that I can take with me wherever I go. If you see what I mean, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so having a system that is generic and adaptable and pluggable um, was you know it, it just fit nicely um, both to the problem that we had at the time, which is all these disparate systems that kind of needed to be um, reined in as as into some sort of generic um, solution, but then also as something that yeah I can I, if I if I went to a company where they had half the problems that I have now and then some new stuff, um, I could potentially continue working on this thing, um, maybe, and um, obviously that does mean that other people can come in and, and put their own stuff in. Um, but uh, like in the early days, I didn't expect that to ever happen because I, th- I figured this is just going to be because I had loads of open source projects at the time that I just kind of threw over the wall, and you know you get a bit of feedback, but it's not as if it, it takes off. Um, and then this one kind of did, but not not because I was expecting it to, which is kind of it was a pleasant surprise. Currently, Benthos's homepage says that it's fancy
2: stream processing made operationally mundane. Um, and I think in the past, I remember your headline being something along the lines of a boring stream processor. Mm-hmm. Um, aside from that sort of humorous contrast with the really grandiose headlines you get on, on sort of you know, major open source projects, how did you latch onto this idea of, of boring software? And, and how do you like define that term?
1: So I think the the people that I'm kind of empathizing with um, when I come up with this jargon is operations people, which traditionally used to be you know a, a kind of separate role at a company, whereas now we've got sort of like the DevOps philosophy where um, you write the stuff, you deploy the stuff, and you're responsible for the whole thing. And I, I, I feel the pain of people deploying and maintaining Kafka, for example. Uh, that's like almost a full-time job, um, just just keeping this thing running, all the components, all the moving parts, um, setting up your own custom monitoring for these things and um, alerting and dashboards around that stuff. It's, it's a headache and... I I don't like that even if I'm not directly the person responsible for it. I don't like the fact that it's there because it's it's a distraction, right? It's it's um it's it's a frustration for for an engineering organization even if you're not the specific engineer doing it. Um, and I I like the idea of um I mean there's lo- there's loads of new tooling um that kind of follows the same philosophy of just being super simple. It's it's configurable but it it's got sensible defaults. Um, and what I mean by sensible defaults isn't just it makes a best guess at what you want it to do. What I mean is it's um, defaults that don't wake you up at 3 a.m. because you forgot to tell it to not explode, um, that kind of thing. And uh, I suppose it's it's just a frustration with tooling that is designed to solve things in a way where it's just more complex than it needs to be um, because that's the more fun problem space. Uh, it's the more exciting thing. I just wanted to build a tool that was pretty simple. It didn't really do anything massively complicated. I mean it's stateless, so it can't it can't do anything super complicated. But the, the point is that solves the vast majority of problems for a lot of people um, in a way where now you don't have to worry about distributed state and persistence and things. It just it just works. It just you just deploy it and you can forget about it and um it's not it's not gonna it's not gonna wake people up unnecessarily. Yeah, and I think anytime I I read
2: a page of documentation about a data tool that doesn't start with set up a Zookeeper cluster, mm-hmm. um, I get a little like spike of joy. Um, <laughs> maybe I I don't want to dive too far in into sort of technical details, but maybe there are a couple interesting things around the the software itself that we could talk about. Um, one of the things that that really stood out to me as I was reading through your documentation and and sort of more information about Benthos was um, you've added a DSL called BlobLang to the platform where you can essentially you know script more complex operations and and data transforms than you might be able to just with sort of a standard configuration. Um, I'm always curious, what's the thought process and and maybe sort of engineering process that goes into designing a scripting language inside a tool like that? And, And were there any interesting trade-offs or challenges you came across when you were working on it?
1: Mm -hmm. So um, the biggest challenge, I guess, with with making a new language is that people don't want to learn a new language. Uh, They've they've already got JavaScript, they've already got SQL, they've already got JQ. Um, Almost everybody who's looking at this tool already has a language that they want to work with. Um, And I actually, I I refrained from having any kind of um, custom language for a long time um, because I wanted to focus on adding languages that people already knew. So um, I'd already had uh, a a James Path um, and a JQ processor and an AUK uh, processor. um, And I kind of figured that's good enough for now to do uh, mappings and things. Um, But I knew that for this particular use case, they're not ideal. Um, and one of the technologies that we had at Datasift um, was a language called IDML, and that's open source as well. Uh, I think the implementation's in Scala. Um, And it was just really good specifically for data transformations, and the the purpose of that language was you've got a payload, probably a JSON object or something. It's structured, uh, maybe, um, and you need to Create some new shape. It needs to look slightly differently. So you've got to be able to do array transformations and things like that. Um, and their focus was on making it kind of user friendly um, for those transformations, which ended up being a language that looks um, it looks kind of like JavaScript, uh, but it's it's very uh, functional. So the assignments are very pure. Um, and it it looks like the kind of language that you would want for data transformations if you're in a space where, I mean, jq is great. Um, jq is probably the uh, other uh, favorite um, for this kind of work. But the the problem with the syntax is it's it's better for for CLI um, situations. So when you've got like a, a two hundred to three hundred line mapping because it's you know big complex data, it doesn't scale as well, and you end up with these you know fairly difficult to follow um, things, whereas IDML was kind of like assignments-based. So I always kind of had in my head this idea, wouldn't it be great if I could do like a Go implementation of of IDML um, and just try it out? because the advantage of the the position I was in was people are already using the servers. So if I just stick some scripting language in there and it's optional, I mean, it's opt-in. Like, you don't have to use um, Blob lang or anything like that. Uh, y- you can choose what kind of processes you use. It gives people an opportunity to... You're not aggressively forcing it on people, so you're not going to alienate anybody from from this thing existing. You'll alienate some people. Some people just don't like stuff to exist. But most people can just avoid it if they, if they don't want to touch it. So then you can kind of, like, test the waters a bit. Um, i did deviate from idML while I was implementing it um that's why it's kind of like it's its own thing um but my my mentality when I was doing it was um the time was right because I had a lot of free time um, and I was kind of looking for for something to try out and i mean the the project just ended up being easier than i thought it was going to be um so i just kept on going and then you know you get the feedback people people start liking it and and that kind of drove me to Finish it um, and carry on from there. So it, it was kind of like an organic process, I guess, because it, it was it was feedback that got me to carry on. Um, I don't try and force it on anybody. Maybe maybe I did indirectly um, force it on people, but not by intention.
2: Another thing that I think is is really cool is that you can deploy Benthos as a, a serverless product. Um, and there's obviously a lot of really appealing things that a serverless deployment brings for data streaming, not paying for idle, horizontal scalability, easy deployment, um, but it's not something I associate with data streaming as a space or, or a set of tools. Um, how did you sort of get the idea to make serverless deployment part of, of Benthos? and were there any interesting challenges
1: in, in getting that to work? Uh, that's a, yeah, that was actually a really interesting process because um, it, the the jump from this thing is a streaming service to, oh, actually, we could just have this as a serverless function was probably only like a couple of days of um, consideration. And it was more just because... So there were two things that kind of enabled it. The first one was um, the, it's stateless. So you can just spin it up and it's immediately ready to go. So it's already in a position where it's not complicated to translate that into serverless land. Um, the other thing was um, the idea of... Um, what I call syn- synchronous responses uh, in in BenThos world, which is basically you can respond to the input stream. So normally in streaming, it's one way, um, but obviously you can you can use HTTP to instantiate streaming. Um, so you can have like an HTTP server input to BenThos, um, and that means you can give a response back. Um, There's also uh, some queue systems where you have request response. So what what I ended up doing for that use case was adding in this mechanism where in the configuration you can express how to um, return messages uh, after transformations and things. Um, And then somebody just came along, and I can't really remember how it started, but I think it was basically just somebody asking, can we get this? Um, I think it was... uh, I can't remember how... How long it was after, but AWS had announced Go support um, for Lambda functions, um, and I think basically somebody just came along and went, "Hey, can we do this?" And, and like the the basis of all that stuff was already there, so I was like, "Okay, well, yeah, we can just try it and and go." And it it wasn't like it wasn't a lot of work. To be fair, the uh, AWS Go um, APIs are, are pretty good, apparently, um, because it was fairly low effort. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is, it was another one of those like kind of organic interactions where somebody came along and said, Hey, can we have, and the answer was, well, actually, yeah, we can get that for, for, uh, not a lot of effort." So yeah, let's just do it. And you know, the, all the pieces were in, were in the right place. Um, they just kind of fit, but I mean, it's, it's not what you would think. It's, it's definitely not what I intended when I started building the service. So I didn't have this vision of like, and we'll also be able to support, um, Lambda functions, uh, but, you know, it, it fits. so, you know, we, we did it.
2: Um, another thing that's, that's always stood out to me about Benthos is the documentation. It's really clear, it's, it's comprehensive, but it also has a really consistent voice and, and kind of a wry sense of humor that makes it, you know, pleasant to get to grips with, especially after, you know, reading some of these other enterprise products documentation where it's just sort of pages and pages of configuration. Um, is that something that you're doing deliberately or, or comes naturally to you? Like, do you have a specific vision for Benthos' documentation or is that just kind of what comes out when you sit down to write?
1: Um, it's kind of a coping mechanism, I guess, because um, it's like, I, I think with stuff like open source, your, your biggest enemy is burnout. Um, and if you're, if you're working on something... And it's not fun that can only last so long before you you just stop doing it um so i doing the documentation was obviously a massive necessity for for configuration-based service and i wanted the documentation to be really good so the way to do that in my mind was just have fun doing it and i I think early on i had the opinion of if i plastered humor all around it's actually going to be a detriment um, it's fun for me and it's fun for some people, but maybe it's, um, it's not going to be great for people just trying to understand it. I was a little bit worried as well about language barriers. So people who don't have English as the first language might get a bit confused by stuff, but I figured, well, if I don't make it fun, it's not going to get done, which is obviously a lot, lot worse for people in that situation. So I'll just do it. And then if people want it to be different, I can, I can look at doing that. Um, and nobody's complained about it. So I just put sarcasm and dumb humor all over the place and I will continue to do so until somebody asks me not to politely, of course. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just a, I don't know, there's, there's lots of stuff around, um, having an open source project. And as it grows, there are things that you end up having to do kind of similar to like a, a business, um, I guess, um, that if you don't find joy in doing that thing, then you just end up with a hole. Like it's it's just not going to get done because unless some uh, friendly stranger is going to come and do it for you, which does sometimes happen, um, you're just not going to do it because you just don't have the the energy for it. Whereas enterprise can you know pay somebody this is your job, um, in which case it's just a job. They're not you know they're they're writing something to hopefully be concise and specific, so there's not all the goofy. Um, humor and stuff in there.
2: That's a, a great segue to talk a little bit about sort of your experience with Benthos as an open source project and, and as an open source maintainer. Um, I'm curious, you know, when did you decide that Benthos was something that you wanted to work on full time and what was your process from sort of having that realization to getting there and, and preparing to make that happen and actually taking the leap?
1: Um yeah, that's interesting because early days, um, as you said, the marketing was very much about it solves the boring stuff um, and it's it's a boring piece of software. And I did feel that um, I was kind of defensively building this thing so that I wouldn't have to keep solving the same boring problems over and over again. Um, and obviously in doing so, that's, that's what I spent a lot of my time doing. Um, and yeah, so at some point I went from... Um, I'm just building this thing kind of defensively and having a bit of fun with with you know making a nice clean service with delivery guarantees that kind of stuff. But then, you know, you, you're still building out this boring tooling. It's not particularly interesting. Um, it's not like distributed computing and, and all that fun stuff. Um, so yeah, at some point, I guess I did make the transition from. I I quite enjoy just making stuff that's nice. So I do, I do get satisfaction out of that. Similarly to how I get satisfaction out of working on complex problems. So I think basically I just kind of, um, yeah, I just became more and more content with, with focusing on that stuff. And when, when you get the feedback, like if, if I have an engagement with somebody where they say, oh my God, that thing you did was, was so useful and I love the way it works or, you know, really helped me in a tough spot. Um. I get more satisfaction from that than um, solving a complex problem and not getting any feedback. Uh, so I think I think it was just kind of like a, a sort of organic process of me seeking out that uh, validation and kind of enjoying it. And you know, it fit. So I, I I kind of assumed the persona of the the guy that does all that boring stuff. Um, and if you've got some ugly problem that you just need a, a, a boring solution for. You just go to that guy because he's already he's already done all that stuff. Um, to transition to doing it full-time, again, that was pretty organic because I, I had responsibility for a lot of stuff at this company. Um, and I wanted to make all that stuff redundant by bringing this thing in. And then my life is simpler because I'm, I'm supporting this this one thing and it also benefits me because it's, it's open source. So it's kind of like now I get to develop out in the open. And again, with the whole garden thing, it means that if I'm putting my efforts into this thing, then it's a garden. I can take it with me wherever I go. Um, and yeah, as as it slowly became more adopted at this place, um, it just it just ended up becoming my my full time gig. Um, and once it got to that point, it was just a question of like, what's the best way of continuing this long term? Um, and yeah, the the idea of of working on open source full-time is definitely not a well-established one. There's no clear uh, roadmap for becoming an open source developer. Um, And there's lots of different uh, ways of organizing that. For me, it's just a very complex mess of um, sponsorships and uh, bounties and contracts. So just like consulting contracts for organizations adopting it. Um, but yeah, and I've got no idea where it goes. I have no idea how long I can ride this train for. Um, but yeah, it's, it's working out right now. So that's, that's all I really care about at this point.
2: Um, now that you've been doing it for a while, what is a typical day for you? Like, what do you wake up and and do and how do you sort of spend your time beyond just hands on keyboard writing new features? Um,
1: it. Really depends. So there's there's obviously the stuff that I have to do, uh, contractually obligated. Um, that stuff gets done, and then um, as far as everything else kind of assembles, it's pretty much where my head is at at the time. So if I'm if I'm not in a mindset to be um, thrashing on a keyboard, implementing the next thing, then I won't. Because um, again, it's like burnout is the enemy. Uh, so if I if I'm not enjoying what I'm doing, then it's it's going to send me down a path where it ends basically. Uh, this whole thing shuts down. So um, I don't I don't mess about with doing stuff unless unless I kind of enjoying it. And luckily with open source, there is a wide variety of things you can get you can get done um, if you're not if if you're not coding. And that's you know community building, so answering questions and stuff like that, um, drawing goofy pictures, um, obviously writing documentation stuff like that. Um, and videos, I do tutorial videos and things. I mean, just, just in those things, there's there's a wide variety of of skill sets that you can just have fun messing around with. And, you know, because it's open source, you don't have to do a perfect job at any of it. Um, and you know, people still are accepting um of of whatever effort you put in. Um so yeah, that's that's typically what will happen is if I'm if I'm in a mindset where I want to get some stuff done. Never force myself to. It's only if I if I feel like I want to do it, um, then I will just get a feel for what kind of thing I want to be doing. Usually, it is code. Um, usually, it's writing stuff. Um, but if not, then you know I'll just think about well, what would what would be fun at this time? And there's always something that needs to get done. So even if it's just drawing goofy pictures, there's a goofy picture that needs to be drawn for every page in the documentation site, um, and I'm not there yet. So. Um, you've mentioned burnout
2: a couple times now, and I think, you know, at least two or three times a year on the front page of Hacker News, there's a story mm-hmm. about, you know, an open source maintainer dealing with burnout and, and just the sort of demands of supporting a community in your software. Um, is that something that you have sort of developed a specific toolkit to deal with, or how do you sort of, you know, keep yourself from from getting burned out?
1: So I'm definitely well-versed in burnout. Um, and the way, the way that I, I, I guess I got kind of like an addictive, uh, personality type where if I'm enjoying something, I find it very difficult to stop doing it. Um, and I, I don't think I've solved it. Um, I've definitely got ways of avoiding it for myself. I'm not necessarily sure they would translate well for others. Um, cause I just think it's such a personal thing, but basically you've got a hobby that, you enjoy doing, and there is nothing stopping you from just doing it twenty four seven. If I was if I was super into electronic engineering, there's only so many components I can store in a house, um, and if I if I run out of components, I've got to order some. There's a physical limitation there, and my fingers will get sore if I'm you know messing around with stuff. So it's like you can't you can't do it. As much as you can, software you can still get burnt out from it, but not to the same extent. With with software, I'm only limited by how quickly I can smash a keyboard um, and sleep. So, I think you I th- you basically spend the first few years of, of your engineering lifecycle uh, not thinking there is a there is a burnout limit, and, and probably thinking that this doesn't apply to you. And I, I don't think it does apply to everybody. Um, But I think the problem with it is you don't realize you've, you've hit that burnout spot till you're already there. Um, at which point, what do you do now? Cause this thing is your job as well. Um, so the, the way that I, I kind of, I prevent it is different to what I did to kind of recover from it, but to prevent it, you know, you just have to rotate and force yourself to do other things. You have to have other hobbies. Um, you have to have things that force you away from the computer. Um, And obviously, you know, families, um, adventure, holidays and stuff are a good way of doing that. Um, But also, you know, just rotate. So you're not always working on the same thing. You're not always doing the same kind of problems. Um, Some people do that by messing around with different languages and stuff. Um, Others, you know, never uh, work on a a project more than just a few days or something. Um, But then when you failed and you have burnt out, um, just get away. Like, if if you can not work then don't like if you can take a holiday for like a week or two weeks or something. Um, it's not something I would say you do yearly. Uh, but obviously if it's an emergency and you've burnt yourself out, um, the, the best way I've found to deal with it is just get, get away completely, like entirely remove yourself from the equation. Um, in open source that does not work because you have people using it. Um, so you've got issues, pull requests, questions, um, things like that. Uh, and I just think that's, that's probably just the reality of open source. Like the bigger your open source project is, the more you have to be preventative, um, or you just go cold turkey for like two weeks and just tell people. I mean, I think Benthos is at the point now where I I have tested this already. There are some great um, members of the community willing to answer questions and things while I'm while I'm not present. Um, shout out Mihai. Uh, and I know that if I if I needed to get away for a week, I could rely on those people. But I mean, to be honest, even if nobody was answering questions for a week, I think most people would get on fine.
2: Um, speaking of, of that community, when I last checked on GitHub, I think Bentho's had 106 contributors. Um, how have you approached building a community of developers around the project? And is that something that's kind of happened organically or, or do you actively work on growing that community?
1: Um, I don't. Other than making the content, I don't really do an awful lot to try and entice people um, or draw people in. Historically, I've always just kind of relied on word of mouth. Um, I'll make the occasional kind of outreach posts. So a lot of a lot of the attention that I've driven into the project has been my kind of videos, um, which is sort of like digging into the code base kind of things. Um, But yeah, most of it's just been sort of organic. And I think that the trick really has been making the um, developer experience just as frictionless as you can. So I mean, if, if somebody comes along, and they have to ask 10 questions before they're at a point where they're able to contribute, they're blocked. Um, and most of the time they're going to be blocked. And any any time there's some sort of exchange that needs to happen between some member of the community and somebody who wants to contribute, that's another opportunity for it to fizzle out before they've they've reached some point where they can actually um, add something to the project. So um making the code base super accessible so people can just come in and and know pretty easily um where where they need to go. The codebase isn't perfect. Uh, it's it's I like to think that it's moving towards simplicity and and ease of um, contribution rather than the other way, um, but it's I th- most people seem to think it's it's fairly easy to contribute. And then when when somebody's got a pull request, if it's sat there and it's ready to go, then I'll try and merge it as quickly as possible before things um, fizzle out. Because that's the main enemy of, of getting contributions is either party me or them losing steam and just figuring eh like I haven't heard anything for a month, so I'll just forget about that pull request. Um, Sometimes that means me getting it over the finish line if there's just one or two little bits that need to happen before something can get merged. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, it's basically a challenge in trying to be as um, responsive as you can without burnout. Um,
2: and a final question. I don't think we can let you go without talking about Benthos' mascot, the blobfish. Um, for my money, probably the best open source mascot anywhere on the internet, um, the <laughs> kid can't do it justice in an in audio format, but it's this just like dour pink blob that, that perfectly represents the kind of vibe of the project. Um, is there a story behind it? Is that something you kind of already had lying around that you were looking for a use for, or, or did you come up with it for bento specifically? It's not a
1: self portrait. Um, I'm just <laughs> going to start with that. Uh, I didn't, I didn't have it lying around. So the, the way that I do, I love, I love mascots for open source projects. That's like one of my, that's uh, like some people really like naming. I'm not that first about names. I'll just use Wikipedia and just go on like a, um, a journey clicking links until I find a word that is, is Googleable and doesn't get you some other piece of software. Um, but the, the mascot, I love them, but the way that I do it is I will just pick a random object or animal, and then just make it look goofy. Um, so sometimes that's getting something really ugly and trying my hardest to to jazz it up, um, often with big eyelashes and cute eyes. Um, or in in the case of Benthos, I just I just love the idea of having a mascot that would just look really sad just by default. Um, and just look like really, I don't know, just really down, like a proper downer. You you bring up the um, GitHub page, and you're immediately met with something that just doesn't want to exist. Um, and you know the the, the brilliance of, of open source is you don't. I don't have a marketing team that are screaming at me, "Don't do this, please! This is going to ruin us." And I don't have um, I don't have investors or anything who are like, mm, "We don't think that that works well. We don't think that plays well." Um, and I mean, I don't think software is is particularly plagued by those things anyway. I think most most companies get away with pretty goofy um, graphics and things. In fact, they're almost definitely encouraged to do it nowadays, especially. Um, but yeah, it's you can the brilliance of open source is you just put something out, and if it's terrible, you can just change it. Uh, if it's if it's great, people will you know say and um, I, I I think with the, with the first I did change it once, so it started off. The mascot's always been a blobfish. Um, that's just kind of squishy and and sad. Um, but it was different. And then basically it got to the point where I was like, okay, I'm keeping this now. Um, I I'd established that people enjoyed the uh the look of it generally. Um and I figured I'm gonna I'm gonna try and spruce this up uh just so it looks a little bit more graphic designy, a little bit more professional. Um, and that's what we've got now. Uh, I think it's been that way for like four years now. My wife is a graphic designer. Um, she has assisted me in making some of the variants. Um, she's not a fan. Uh, and I think she finds it a mockery of her profession. Um, and there's rumors out there that she's the one that made the original Blobfish. And that is that is absolutely incorrect, uh, unsubstantiated claim. And I will fight that in court
0: if I need to. Um, awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And um, if there's anything like you want to point our listeners to or plug, um, we definitely want to give you the chance the chance to do that.
1: Uh, if it sounds like um, if you've got a stream processing problem, then uh, maybe check out Benthos.dev. Um, but yeah, I don't really have anything to uh, to plug other than that. That's still, like the only thing going on in my life.
0: <laughs> um, where can people find you on Twitter or? Um
1: twitter i'm jeffale um github i'm jeffale and youtube i think my youtube channel is jeffale but either of those places will take you to all the others as well uh, for people interested you can find me i'm on the internet
0: awesome well this has been great thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you around
1: thank you for having me
2: Thanks for listening to PodRocket. Find us at PodRocketPod on Twitter, or you could always email me, even though that's not a popular option. It's Brian at LogRocket.